Hey, welcome to night school. I'm going to talk a little bit about the phrase toxic, which is a word that I've stopped using entirely, not that I used it a lot, unless I'm referring to something that is chemically toxic. I don't use it in a general sense, because we've seen where that word has, as many toxic things do, the word toxic itself has mutated. But you hear a lot these days in this sort of pop psychology that has become part of mainstream dialogue. Oh, be careful of toxic people. Oh, dude, she's so toxic. Oh, he's toxic. And what's funny is the people who say that the most seem to have a high level of toxicity themselves. Because, of course, toxic people would pick up on a phrase like that where you can just brand somebody toxic or brand a certain behavior toxic. Of course, it would be the toxic people themselves who would attach themselves to that. In the same way that certain people have attached themselves to this, this sort of pop psychology. Meanwhile, they're the, they're the culprits. But the phrase toxic, you know, it first started to pick up. I mean, beyond just the idea of toxic people. Oh, you got you to get rid of the toxic people in your life. I don't necessarily recommend that. I have certain people in my life who I think are prone to certain forms of toxicity, but you can kind of contain it. You can kind of contain it depending on what it is, and it doesn't necessarily have to impact you depending on the kind of person you are. I mean, everybody has their own everybody has their own way of dealing with that sort of thing, and depending on who you are, how sensitive you are, you know, you can deal with it depending on who the person is and who you are and what the basis of your relationship is. So I'm not a big fan of the idea of just get rid of every toxic person. Because, I mean, I, I believe that I can be toxic. I believe that I can be. Everybody has the capacity. But I think in certain areas, and I mean, that's one of the reasons, though, why I don't necessarily involve myself with certain people or certain interests as much as I used to. Like, there was an interest that I was very heavily involved with when I was younger, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, a creative interest. And it made me very cynical and mean to other people who were involved in that interest, not necessarily on a one-on-one basis, but in a general sense, because I'm a naturally critical person. And as a result... My criticism can often turn into cynicism, cynicism, citizen, citizen, I can be a very cynical citizen. No, but it's just something I've learned about myself. And a few years ago, I met a friend, a girl moved to town here who was involved in that form of creativity. And we became friends. And I was a big fan of what she was doing and and who she is and everything. But through her, I kind of got a glimpse into what was going on in those circles, a little bit of a glimpse into what some newer people were doing. And I met some other people involved. And actually, I, I thought they were all good people. I thought they were all nice people. But I could feel that sort of, I could feel the toxic waste starting to boil inside of me again. And I was like, oh, this is why I distanced myself. And it's, it has nothing to do with anybody doing anything wrong. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It's just a tendency I have. And it, it is an element of, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, which 
I tend to use and we tend to think of as familiarity with another person often breeds contempt because those people's flaws become magnified. The dissonance between you becomes magnified when you are more familiar with somebody. But it's also true in a general sense with interests and certain circles. And I feel that I'm able to appreciate that interest of mine, and I'm purposely being general here because I want to I think it applies to many different things. But speaking of this this creative interest, I'm able to appreciate it a lot more the more space the more time passes, but also the more space I keep from it. Because it was interesting, because I, I really hadn't put my finger on the pulse in a very long time, and this is I think 2018. And just putting my finger on the pulse for a minute, I could almost feel myself being transformed into this, you know, monster again. And it didn't come to that, but I could just I could just sense it. And I was like, oh, there's a reason why I have moved on in certain ways. There's a reason why I don't stay involved as much as I used to. Partially just because my life has moved on, but also just because I can I can sense that it's turning me into a monster again. But everybody, you know, once, once people identified the idea of toxicity, that a human being could be toxic, well, one, that's a really toxic attitude to have about a person's entire being. And yeah, we all meet people who could be called completely toxic, like everything they touch gets poisoned. But I've known very few people who that would describe. I've known very few people who it seems like everything they touch gets infected. They exist. But they're not that common. But with the way that people talk about it, they will just use it. Anybody who they find disagreeable, anybody who they have an argument with, anybody who they're just not meant to harmonize with. You're not meant to harmonize with anybody. You don't need to find consensus with everybody. There's no need. It's not how anything functions. Nothing on this planet functions that way. There is harmony to be found. There is a greater spiritual harmony to be found. But we don't live on a planet where every single thing living here is meant to harmonize with every other thing. And accepting that, funny enough, gives you a greater sense of harmony. It's like the the example I've used before where I was talking about youth football the other day. And I didn't think this way at the time, but since then, when I look back at the game of football, I look at it and I'm like, these are two opposing teams trying to physically hurt each other and beat each other. But you know what? They're cooperating. They are both playing by the same rules, wearing the same general uniforms, playing the same game. They are actually cooperating. These aren't people going out onto a football field and just trying to kill each other with no rules. Yeah, some people break the rules, but you're penalized for that. So there's actually this greater harmony to playing the game of football. So even though it's two people competing, or or sorry, well, two people, but even though it's two teams competing against each other, even though everything about it you know, kind of taps into that spirit of conflict. If you look at it from the top down with a bigger picture in mind, it's actually very harmonious. 
So you can look at the entire planet that way where, yeah, you know, even though not everything is meant to perfectly harmonize on this planet, within the conflict and competition, looking at that from a bigger picture, there is an element of harmony too. But when it comes to, you know, person to person, group to group, not everybody is meant to harmonize, at least in the way that we understand harmony. Not everybody is meant to have consensus. And increasingly I see where it's like if consensus can't be found, if agreement can't be found, if personalities clash, it's very easy to point a finger and be like, it's toxic. Oh, God, it's toxic. But then you can see where that's applied just to general behaviors, you know, where this first started to get heavily politicized, because calling like an individual toxic, being like, oh, be careful of her, be careful of him, toxic personality, you know, oh, God, it's a toxic personality. You know, that wasn't very political. People didn't really politicize this sort of pop psychology idea of an individually toxic person. But you you started to hear the phrase toxic masculinity ramp up. You started to hear that become more and more commonplace. And what it was describing at its core isn't necessarily wrong. As I say time and time again, I'm a man and I know that men rape and kill. I know that men rape and kill more than anybody else. It's sort of the shadow of a man's, it, it's, it, those qualities are sort of the shadow of a man's strengths. Where you think about like what, what you know, you think about the, the masculine ideal where it's like a strong man who stands up for what's right, who protects people, who is virtuous. And then the shadow of that is using all of those same assets for self-serving negative pursuits. Like what makes a man able to protect people is the same skill set, it's the same set of qualities that make a man able to kill and violate other people. Using your strength for good versus using your strength for bad. But the issue with the toxic masculinity thing is one, it became heavily politicized. And it started to be used in a general sense and used by people who don't know what it is to be a man at all. People who have no idea what it is to be a man. And part of that conversation that's overlooked, that's not included in the in common discussions of toxic masculinity, is that those the same qualities that make for these toxic behaviors can be used for good. And just a lack of understanding, you know, I was talking about youth football a lot lately, and, you know, people have a tendency to look at that from the outside and be like, oh, when football players give each other a hard time and make fun of each other and push each other, and that's all toxic. And it's like, not necessarily. Criticism isn't toxic. You know, an element of tension isn't toxic. You know, having that sort of warrior mindset isn't toxic unto itself. So it's people who are kind of ignorant of what it is to be a man. And it's no coincidence that a lot of the people who popularized the phrase toxic masculinity were either women 
Not that they don't have a reason to complain about some of the things men do. And weak men. And weak men are real. You know, yeah, they might have strengths in other ways, but when it comes to the parameters of masculinity, they would be considered somewhat weak. And so there's this element of resentment. And you can't actually discuss an idea if you're coming from a place of resentment. And yeah, we all have resentment that we can't shake. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be allowed to have an opinion. But you can see where a lot of the people who were pushing this idea of toxic masculinity were coming from a very resentful place and unwilling to detach themselves from that resentment, unwilling to set that resentment off to the side. And I don't really want to go on about toxic masculinity here. A lot of people have addressed it. It becomes just a a web of nonsense and bullshit just to discuss it at all. And you don't even hear it as much now. You don't even hear it as much. Now that people are afraid to even mention men and women, now that people are afraid to even define men and women, you don't even really hear toxic masculinity talked as, about as much. But what's so funny to me, and I find this truly funny, laughably funny, is in the last year and a half, last year, this new phrase has become popularized, and it likely has earlier roots. I'm sure it's been around, but I pay attention to all this stuff, and I first started to notice it. I started to notice that it really took off in the summer 2020 during the whole George Floyd affair, which is the phrase toxic positivity, where violence and horror is perpetuated in part by people who are just polite. People who are kind and polite are perpetuating violence because they're not angry. I mean, it kind of plays into the phrase, if, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And silence is violence. Silence is violence. You know, it plays into those phrases because the idea is that you're, by being passive or agreeable, you are enabling horrible things. It's not that that's nonsense. That can happen. I mean, you think about a family where there's abuse going on in the family, but the family wants to present a very positive, agreeable image. Like, oh, we don't want to ruin our family's reputation. We don't want to clue outsiders into the dark stuff that's going on behind closed doors. So we're just going to smile and be nice. You know, there's, there is an idea in there. And I always want to point that out. That it's, like, it's not that I don't understand where the idea is coming from. It's not that I don't understand where the idea of toxic positivity is coming from. There is an idea in there. But the way it's applied, the way it's distorted turns it into a laughable absurdity. And I've really only seen the idea of toxic positivity promoted by women. And it was used very heavily in summer 2020 because the idea was that by being kind and polite about social and political issues, you're actually encouraging these very destructive behaviors and processes. So don't be nice, which is bad advice. 
it's hard to be nice. If you're me, like I was just talking at length a minute ago about how I'm naturally a very critical person. I've had to guide myself into being a more kind person, into being a more generous person. Whether I've achieved that or not doesn't matter. I've had to guide myself into that, and I have to keep that strong. It's a bad idea for someone like me, and there are a lot of people like me because I know them and I see them. I have radar for it. But it's a bad idea for people like me to say, you know what? Being kind and polite is toxic. Because you give yourself an excuse to do the opposite, which is to be mean, nasty, and destructive in the name of some kind of virtue. In the name of, in the name of, of some kind of cause that you may or may not be right about. And when you convince yourself that you're on the right side of history and you combine that with this idea that being kind and polite enables the wrong side of history, that'll turn you into a monster. And we can see where some people have become psychological monsters as a result of that. And so I would never do that to myself. Because I used to use a similar justification myself, like being involved in the dark arts. And I don't mean Satanism, but I mean dark art, dark creativity. I used to use this excuse and I would talk to Miles about it. And he was in agreement because we think similarly in many ways. And I would talk to Miles about it and I would say, what we're involved in is the excuse. Like we don't, because we're involved in this, we don't have to be nice. And there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for people knowing what they're dealing with and not being weak or too sensitive. Because that's just psychological. You know, I'm not talking about any kind of outwardly destructive or nasty negative behavior, like hurting people. I'm just talking about being psychologically nasty. But I know a lot about this because I myself used all sorts of excuses to justify that behavior when I was younger. And even after setting up guidelines that helped me be more kind, that helped me be more nice, that helped me be more understanding, I still find myself veering back into cynicism. And through cynicism, I can be a nasty person. So the fact that even with these guidelines in place, and in my case, it's like nobody made me this way. I know that certain males in my family are similar to me. They didn't teach me to be this way. I wasn't abused. Nobody was mean to me. My parents have treated me very well my entire life. As I've said many times, my mom was one of the kindest, most generous people. And that's what she instilled into me. Even though I feel that men in my family are often very cynical and critical people by our very nature, they weren't cynical and critical of me. Never. I can't even think of a single time when a family member of mine told me off or said something mean to me. I can't even think about it. Like, yeah, you have disagreements and things, but I don't feel that I came from a family that turned me cynical. Yet that's something natural inside of me. 
I think that is my disposition. And because of that, I know that I can't do or say anything at this point in my life, especially to encourage that. I can't fan those flames. And in some ways, I feel like I'm living in a bizarro world. Because when I was like 19 years old, and I was just going full force into that way of thinking of like, hey, I'm just telling it like it is. Hey, I'm critical. Because it's a it's a dark world. It's a dark world. You know, when I used to justify that sort of behavior, um, I can't, can't remember where I was going with that, but when I used to justify that behavior, one, it didn't need any encouragement. Well, what I was going to say is it, it feels like a bizarre world now because... When I was like 19 years old, let's say 2004, 2005, 2006, that period of time, I didn't need any encouragement. And I often resented people who were trying to be positive and nice because it seemed fake. It seemed inauthentic. It did seem to reinforce things I didn't like about the world. And, and sometimes it felt like everybody else was repeating these BS positive platitudes all the time. And I was like, I don't know where you people are coming from because, I mean, I, I see reality as it is. But I feel like I entered a portal or something in recent years, especially the last year and a half to two years, the age of coronavirus and the ultra-politicization of everything, where it feels like all of a sudden, and, I, and I try to, I'm trying to say this without talking myself up or, or acting like I'm better than anybody, but it does feel like in the last year and a half to two years that all of a sudden I feel very positive. I often feel very positive and I have a strong desire to be polite and kind. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I want to get along with people, no matter what they believe even, whether I agree with them or disagree with them. I have this strong desire to get along with people and to be nice, to default to being nice. And as I feel this way more, it seems like the world is encouraging people to be that much more cynical, that much more critical, that much more mean-spirited. And some of that might just come from feeling more positive. Like when I was in a more negative place, maybe just the contrast made it seem like everybody was being more positive even if it was inauthentic positivity. Maybe part of that is the contrast that like, if you yourself feel like you enter a personal portal, a PP, you've entered a PP? You entered a PP? How'd you do that? No, but if you feel like you, I thought everything exited PPs. Um, no, it turns out you can enter a PP, a personal portal too. But as I feel like I've entered this more positive personal portal, a P, now you're talking about PPPs? God, stupid. But um, maybe some of that's the contrast. Where like if you yourself feel like you experience a positive transformation, maybe everything around you is exactly the same as it always was. But because you feel more positive, you become more aware of the negativity that already existed around you because you feel different. I think that's true for me. But there's no question the state of discourse, the state of the world has become nastier. I can't think of a possible argument against that. The ultra-politicization, 
the dogmatism, the fact that there is a fairly mainstream talking point on the left right now that says toxic positivity. Don't be nice to people because you are enabling bigotry, racism, and violence, this abstract idea of violence. The fact that that's a talking point from people I know, and it's all women. It is all women who say that. And I think it goes, it goes hand in hand with this idea that women are conditioned to be more agreeable. And so I think the idea that, oh, I don't want to give in to toxic positivity I think one of the reasons that speaks to women, and I'm not speaking for women, but as an outsider to, to womanhood, I think one of the reasons why that speaks to women so heavily is because there is, there is an, a popular idea that women are conditioned to be more agreeable and polite so as not to upset the apple cart. And maybe that's conditioned, but that gets into that idea that I often bring up, which is, well, who created society? The idea is that society conditions women to be a certain way, but it's a chicken and the egg argument. Like, who created society? Society developed, in my opinion, and I think it is a matter of opinion because there's no way that we can actually determine this. It doesn't matter how much anthropological research we do. There's no clear-cut way to say for sure, which is that Society developed hand-in-hand with our own development as human beings, and society reflects natural tendencies in men and women. But in turn, society reinforces certain behaviors too, and sometimes it reinforces them too much. Maybe society does condition women to be more agreeable than they should be. I'm willing to believe that. But I think there's also a natural agreeableness to women. Women like consensus, and we can see that especially over the last couple years. You know, it might seem like I'm being really hard on women all the time these days. And maybe I am. If someone feels that I'm being too hard on women, they're welcome to say so. I think that I am pretty hard on certain types of women these days. Not in a misogynistic, mean-spirited way. But I just see certain behaviors playing out, and I question them. I question the motivation. The justification. But if you need a disclaimer, what did I just say about men? What did I just say about men? I just said men are rapists and killers. And that's something I've always said. I've always said it. It's like I've always said which is that if you think I'm hard on women, you should hear what I think about men. The group I'm a part of and therefore have intimate knowledge of, of what our motivations are, of what we do, the way we think. If you think I'm hard on women, just listen. Pay attention when I talk about men. Clear your biases. Clear your brain of all biases and actually listen sometimes to what I say about men. But that's just a little disclaimer. Because we live in a world of disclaimers now. They don't seem to have any effect. I mean, that's the reason why I'm so opposed to disclaimers, is they don't actually seem to make a difference. The person who's going to be bothered by the thing that you're disclaiming is going to be bothered by it regardless of how you prepare them for it. Because it plays into the general nastiness and cynicism. People are so cynical that a disclaimer is meaningless to them. 
So you're really just lowering yourself by making a disclaimer, but you know, I think the popularity of toxic positivity as an idea, and this comes from women that I personally know, and it seems to have taken off very quickly. I think that somebody sees an infographic explaining this idea and they just start believing it. I think that's how many people operate. They get on Instagram and they see an Instagram story that has an infographic about an idea and they just take it on. They read an infographic explaining how toxic positivity is when people are too agreeable and polite and therefore enable far more destructive behaviors that are going on that should actually be met with a certain sternness or viciousness, as we see. People think that you need to be vicious. And I think that idea is attractive to a certain type of woman because the dialogue says that, oh, you've been conditioned to be agreeable. You've been conditioned to find consensus. I think women naturally look for consensus. That's been my experience with all types of women. And uh, I think they naturally, most women have a, a much stronger tendency to find consensus, to seek consensus. And when there isn't consensus, I think it causes them more distress than it does men. And that's an asset. It's not that that's a bad thing. That is an asset. We need consensus. We need harmony. Women are incredible at bringing people together. Like if you've ever been in a social situation with men and women at a party, women are far more skilled at saying, oh, hey, hey, Byron. Hey, Byron, this is Brian. Your names use similar letters. Your names kind of sound similar. Your name's Byron and his name's Brian. You're kind of similar. And next thing you know, Brian and Byron are talking. Women have a a much more refined skill set socially when it comes to kind of bringing people together and finding consensus among them. They're able to glue people together in certain ways, in social settings, in communal settings. But it, of course, like, like I was saying about men having these strengths that are also weaknesses, these strengths that also can be negative on the other side of the coin where the shadow is. You know, it's the same for that too. And I think we're seeing that now where, you know, during summer 2020, I noticed that women that I knew seemed to be so adamant that everybody be on the same page about these very polarizing social issues. And I think it's true for Coronavi as well, where it's not exclusively women, but at least in my life, the people who seem to be the most vocal and most adamant about everybody responding to coronavi in exactly the same way seem to be primarily women. There is this sort of consensus that they are seeking. And so I think that plays into toxic positivity, where it's that politeness, it is that agreeableness that helps facilitate consensus. But I think it's a bad idea to target that. There should be new, anytime you are telling people not to be nice, that you should be aggressive and mean, 
you can't do that in a broad sweeping way. It is far too dangerous. It's far too dangerous. And I don't use the word dangerous lightly. It is far too dangerous when you say, hey, guess what? Maybe you shouldn't be nice and polite to people. That should be a very nuanced discussion. But when you just like detaching from all this that I'm saying, when you just look at the phrase toxic positivity, it's so funny to me. It is so funny to me because it's like now positivity is toxic. Like we went from discussing masculinity and saying like toxic masculinity to now positivity, goodwill. Goodwill is now toxic. And of course, that only fans the flames of tribalism. Because if you can't find consensus with everybody, you seek to strengthen consensus among your own tribe or group. And if that consensus is in conflict with another tribe's consensus, and you're promoting this idea of no politeness, politeness is toxic. Well, you're cheerleading war. You are begging for war. And maybe humans need war. I don't know. I don't believe in doing, I don't believe in promoting war. I'm a fan of peace. I know how easy it is to get into conflict. And as a result, I do everything, everything I can to stay away from it. So anything to me that encourages war, I want to stay away from. But I also question sometimes, like, is some of this nonsense we're dealing with, is this the byproduct of us just not going to war against each other? You know, in The Godfather, in The Godfather, like during the mob war, I think it's Clemenza says something like, you know, this just has to happen every few years. Uh, it, it clears out the bad blood. Like, do we need a certain amount of conflict and war, true warfare, to just clear all the bad blood every now and again? Be like, things have to come to a head in a horrifying way for us to kind of regroup, to reharmonize. I don't know. I don't want to take on that belief. I don't want to believe that we need war, but I sometimes question it. I sometimes question whether or not things need to come to a head. But uh, in a personal sense, I don't think so. Maybe if you can't escape somebody, it, it does need to come to a head, but it's like you can this is something that's important. This is a skill. This is kind of segueing a little bit, but it relates to all this. Learn how to just phase people out of your life. You know, so many people live in a world where they have people in their lives and I think they kind of forget how they got there and forget like why or how those people are in their lives, especially people that you've chosen to have in your lives, like friends. Family is one thing. Family is a different story. But when it comes to people that are in your life by choice, at least in theory, by choice. But, you know, I've talked about hoarding on here. And I, I have a close relative who's a hoarder. Not a, not a nasty, dirty hoarder. Like, they don't collect dead animals. They don't have a house filled with garbage and dead animals. They just save everything. But it's, none of it's dirty stuff. 
The only dirt is the dust that it, it accumulates, but they save everything. And this was a realization I had at my last house that I lived in for seven and a half years, where I did this massive spring cleaning about uh, half a year before I moved out. And I'd been living there for seven years. And I realized that so many things had just become institutions to me. So many arbitrary things had become institutionalized in my house. Where like I had this coffee table and every time I would buy a new book, not a, uh, not like a paperback book, but like a hardcover book, whether it's an art book, a comic book, like a graphic novel, a history book, something that's larger, hardcover, I would just put it in this stack. And I ended up with this giant tower of books on my coffee table. And every time I would get another book like that, I would just put it there. And then it became two stacks, but it became this institution. It was just the place where that stuff goes. And when I was cleaning out my house too, I opened up this closet. I had a lot of, it was this tiny little shack, but it had tons of closet space, really weird little custom built closets. It was kind of cool, but, uh, there was this closet that I didn't really need for anything. And any, anytime I would buy a new appliance or get a package in the mail, just anything like that, that came in a big box, I would just put the boxes in there and I wouldn't even look. I would just throw, it was a big closet. And so I would just throw the, the boxes in there. And when I was cleaning out my house, doing this big spring cleaning, I went to that closet and I was like, man, there's two vacuum boxes. There's like a four track box. There's this box. There's that box. This just became an institution. This became the place where I just throw that. And I think that's how hoarding works, where I think that you think about people whose houses are filled with garbage. You see those videos of, of hoarders and their kitchen is it's like mounds of Lay's bags. It's like potato chip bags everywhere. And you wonder how that happens. You wonder. And, and I realized part of that is that like one day that person like finished a bag of Lay's potato chips. They finished a bag of Lay's. It feels like it's always Lay's. I don't know what it is about Lay's. I mean, the name's always funny to me. Lay's. Lay's potato chips. But uh, it's, whenever you see those hoarding videos, it's like they seem to love Lay's potato chips. And, and I think how it starts is like you, they finished a bag of Lay's and they just kind of threw it over somewhere. They just tossed it into a corner of the kitchen. And the next time that they finished a bag of something, the next time they ate fast food... They just kind of put garbage there again. And even though it's garbage, it became an institution in the same way that like putting a stack of books somewhere in my house became an institution. And I've told the story on here before about in my childhood house, we had this very cool enclosed backyard. And when my sister was a little girl, my dad built what we called the playhouse. He built this little building behind our house that was very cool. It was two stories, but it was very small. And it was built as kind of a playhouse for my sister. My dad and his cousin built it. And uh, behind the playhouse, there was this little secluded area where just there was like gardening tools and things like that. It was you couldn't see it from the yard. You had to go behind the playhouse to see it. And there was this huge stack of bricks there, like probably 100 bricks just stacked up like a tower. And as a kid, I just kind of took for granted that that was this big stack of bricks. Like it didn't compute in my brain that my parents had 
built something with bricks at our house. Like my parents had done something involving bricks, maybe the chimney, and they had a bunch of bricks left over. You're not going to just get rid of bricks. So they stacked the bricks behind this playhouse. But th that stack of bricks ended up being there my entire childhood. That stack of bricks was there for probably 15 years at least. Easily the 15 years those bricks were there. And as a kid, I would go play over there. And in my mind, it was like no different than like a tree growing somewhere. It was no different than anything else where you're just like, that's just there. It's an institution. In my mind, those bricks were an institution. I didn't think about the fact that they were just leftover bricks. They were probably arbitrarily placed there because they were out of view. And my parents just thought, oh, eventually we're going to do something with these. And there's so many things like that in your life. There's so many behaviors. So many of the things you think and do operate the same way because it's, it's ideas you have as well. Ideas can become an institution to you, especially ideas. And I'd be here all day if I got into that again. I know it's been discussed before, but still, it's something to consider. But with um, that idea of like certain ideas becoming institutionalized, people are that way too. Where like some person will be in your life and you kind of forget how they got there or why. They're just an institution. And at least for me, I don't bring a lot of people in. I've never, as a kid, as an adult, I don't really bring a lot of people in, but that's not to say it's all by design or strategic. Like, I can't tell you how I met some friends of mine. Like, my best childhood friend, I think we became friends around five years old, and we've tried to figure out exactly how we met, because it was before school. We didn't have a sa the same class together. It wasn't like we had kindergarten together and became friends. But it was through some social connection that our families had, but our families didn't know each other before that. And we've tried to map it out, and we, we think we eventually figured it out, like by finding common people that our families knew. But you think about this guy was my best childhood friend, and he's still one of my best friends today. But I couldn't even tell you how he got involved in my life, how he got involved in my life. You know, I can't even tell you that. And that's true even in adulthood. Like sometimes someone will be a part of your life and you're like, when you actually stop and think about how you met and not just how you met, because that's usually easy to figure out as an adult, like, oh, we worked together. We were at this party. But as far as the chemistry that made you friends and, and who initiated it, because I still find that strange. Like the idea of being a human being and, and just being like, hey, we got along do you want to hang out again? Like as a little kid, your parents kind of help facilitate that. School helps facilitate that. But as an adult, it's sort of strange how you can meet somebody and become close friends. And it just comes through like, hey, let's do this. Let's hang out. It's very strange. And that person becomes an institution. But there's a lot of people who go through life and they don't realize that you can just phase people out. If they're in trouble. And my own standards for that are probably different than other people. Like I know certain people who have issues. And I've made it a point to detach myself. Like it's one thing if their issues come in direct conflict with you. But thinking about it, one friend of mine who's often in a state of turmoil. I think there are some people and I know there are some people in this person's life who have just washed their hands of them 
or things come to a head. I've made it a point to detach myself from this person's own personal issues, and I've done what I can to help this person when they can use my help. Not just anybody's help, but help in ways that I personally have to offer. But with limitations, too. And I think some people would be like, well, that person's negative. Because that's another form of the toxic. The neg- oh, they're a negative person. Well, they exist. They were created. That's a positive quality. They came to be. They're here for a reason, is my belief. But, you know, that's a different story. Like, it's one thing if that person is constantly causing you grief. Or if you can't trust that person. That should be a sign that you face someone out. And I see this in relationships, which blows my mind. Like, I know people who their significant other has cheated on them. And they suspect that their, signif- their significant other is continuing to cheat on them, on them. And it bothers them. They're not polyamorous. They're not polyamorous sapiosexuals. And they stay with that person. And they seem to almost get off in a weird way. Maybe not get off, but they seem to almost... Like that, that mistrust or distrust has almost become an institution. And they don't realize that they can just do something else with their life. Like they're so used to that person being their significant other that even though that person is manipulative and doing terrible things to them, and even when that person isn't doing those things, you never actually know whether they are or not because they have before. Like when they're in that situation, they don't realize that like you can, that person has become an institution in your life, but you can actually do something else. You can walk away, but people get meaning from these institutions. Like someone who's dealing with a friend who is constantly provoking them and bringing drama into their life. Some people get attached to that. They kind of like it. It's like, oh, Sally is always fighting with me. But you become kind of hinged on that. And you don't realize that if that's causing you grief, if that's causing you trouble, you can just phase that person out. And a lot of people don't end friendships unless it comes to a head, which is interesting. They don't end relationships unless they come to a head. And if you're dealing with an extremely difficult person, what somebody might consider a toxic person, you can just phase them out. And that's your best option. You just phase them out. I can think of a couple people. There's some people I haven't seen in a while, and I would like to see them again. But it's just things just don't feel right. Now it just doesn't seem like the time to hang out and see these people for whatever reason. And if those people truly matter, time can pass and you'll be able to reignite your friendship. But there are other people where like I have consciously distanced myself from them. And a lot of it is political these days. As much as I don't like to form my friendships around politics, and I don't, I truly don't form my friendships around politics. I don't care what my friends think. I do care how they handle their politics. I do care how they act about social issues. Like I know a couple people who are just possessed and they all, they have been long before the last two years, they were possessed before that they they've been possessed as long as I've known them. But that possession 
wasn't as big of a deal five or six, seven years ago. Five or six, seven years ago. It wasn't as big of a deal then. Like I was a little more tolerant. I was more willing to kind of just sit there. And if they went off about something, I would just kind of go, huh, okay. But one of these people in particular was constantly getting into major disputes with their friends. They were always attacking people who weren't their friends. Anybody who disagreed with this person about politics or society was their enemy. And they made that very clear. But I noticed that this person was continually doing it with their personal friends as well. They would get very close to a new person. And then sure enough, they would find some reason and then pull other people into it and start this campaign, really trying to ruin people's reputations, going on these witch hunts. And it always came to a head. It was always this huge dramatic event. And they did it even with their own friends especially with their own friends. Familiarity breeds contempt. You can find reasons to be mad at your friends. I get mad at my friends. Even when I have no good reason to, I get mad at them because they're close to me. And I, I see their flaws and I know they see mine. And I don't blame them for being mad at me. They just better be right. <laughs> they just better, they, if they're going to criticize me, they just better be criticizing me for something real. But anyway, like this person I knew was kind of a case study where this person was continually persecuting other people, their political enemies, for the slightest reasons too, because the reasons this, this person's parameters for enemy and, and non-enemy enemy were very, very narrow, very narrow parameters as to what makes someone a bad person. And so I, I watched this develop and I was drinking a lot at the time. And I don't, if I wasn't drinking so much, I don't think I would have had any tolerance for this because I would hang out with these people. I would drink with them. They, they were drunks like me. And so we would drink a lot and we would have good times. But I think a, a clear dividing line came with Trumpsfeld, where it's not that it, it's not that it was caused by Trumpsfeld, because I think a lot of people's brains reset in 2016 and they forget everything that was building and led to the Trumpsfeld Hillary Clinton is, you know, d dilemma. That's a dilemma. If I've ever heard one, you know, I think people forget everything that was building there, everything that was building socially, everything that was building politically. I think they just think that this thing happened in 2016 and their memory has just gone blank or they weren't paying attention to begin with. But I noticed that that was a clear divide where like the severity of people's behavior, the severity of their opinions, the lack of civility increased tenfold, more than tenfold. I mean, it's, it's increased. I, I wouldn't even be able to measure it. You can't measure it. These things are immeasurable, but you sense them, you feel them. And my own tolerance for that dissipated and then when I quit drinking I just realized like I can't I, alcohol was the only thing allowing me to tolerate certain people and so there's a couple people that I'm thinking of right now who I very deliberately phased out of my life like I saw them once or twice if they messaged me I would respond I would be civil but I was very deliberately icing them out of my life 
And they've only gotten worse in this way. And I've had a couple online disagreements with them, which I made it a point to keep it civil. But the sort of things they said to me were dripping with contempt. And it's only because I kind of kept the civility afloat. And I know this sounds like I'm praising myself, but it's the truth. I could see where they were trying to provoke me because that's what they do when someone disagrees with them. When they realize that you're not going to agree with them, when you're not going to reach a consensus with them, they get into, oh, you're an enemy. And so I'm going to say things that are incredibly provocative, that insult your intelligence, that insult your character. When you know my character, you might not know me that that well. You might not know everything I believe, everything I don't believe. You might not know every one of my values. You might not know everything about me, and nobody should. But, 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 you know my basic character. And so when you're making provocative statements to me, I can feel the temptation to give in to that. I can tell that you're looking for a fight. Especially if, as one of these people in particular is, is the sort of person that doesn't phase people out of their own life. They bring everything to a head. They campaign against people. It's what they do. And I've seen them do it with their best friends. I've seen them do it with other friends. I've seen them do it with acquaintances. I've seen them do it with total strangers. They campaign. They're in group chats talking about people. They have no reservation about blasting somebody on social media or they have no problem hanging out at a bar, loudly gossiping about somebody, loudly trying to destroy someone's character. I witnessed this quietly listening. And when you see that pattern, it's one thing like because the thing is, when you meet somebody like that, you see them do it once, maybe twice. And you go, huh, that person must be a real problem. That person that this this person's obsessed with defaming this person's character, that person must have low character because I get along with this person and that person they're talking about must be a real bad character, you know, and then you start to see them do it three times, four times, five times in a relatively short amount of time. And it's very obvious who the source of the issue is, no matter who that I mean, everybody's imperfect, everybody's fallen. It's not that the people they're talking about are perfect either. But you start to notice that certain people do that, and then you channel that through politics. You channel that through self-righteous sociopolitics that now govern our every move. Do you want to be around that person? Do you have any business with that person? None. What got me thinking about this is that this person tried to call me today. I was running errands, and when I got home, I checked my phone, and I saw they tried to call me. And I haven't had a phone conversation with this person ever. I have never had, to my knowledge, a phone conversation with this person. I haven't seen this person in three years. There's somebody in this person's life who I still have fond opinions of, but 
I've seen where that person has been kind of corrupted. Someone's too close to, to a, a corrupting force. They inevitably get corrupted too and start to communicate in that person's language. And I hesitate to even talk about this and I'm trying to be as general as possible, but it made my skin crawl. Because my first thought was, oh, I hope there wasn't an emergency. I hope that maybe the, the other person in this person's life who I know is okay. But I also feel like you can leave a message if that's the case. You can send me a text message. When I saw that this person called me, it made my skin crawl. Because this person is so accusatory, so prone to persecu- persecutory behavior. Persecutory? Persecutory? They're, they're so prone to witch hunting that it, it just, I thought, no. It's interesting when you're just, you're inner being just says to you, no, no, I wasn't going to call back. I'm glad I still have their number in my phone so that I didn't answer it because I saw that it was them and it could have been totally friendly. But I saw that and I was just like, I can't answer this. And that sucks. It sucks. I don't get any joy out of saying that. But I just thought, I can't answer that phone call. Because you know what? This is a person who is looking for reasons. They are looking for reasons. And, and the sad part about it is deep down, I think this person has a desire for warmth. They have a lot of good qualities. I'm not saying this person is all bad by any means. But I've seen this behavior And all of the things we're seeing now in the public, all of these ideas that have become mainstream, this push to demonize other people, that's this person's MO to a T. And some of the online disagreements I've had with this person since I stopped spending time with them have just reinforced my view that, oh, I don't want anything to do with this. I need to, I've been deliberately phasing this person, these people out. I can't coexist in a comfortable way. But you know, for people like that, who everything comes to a head, everything turns into some mortal conflict where you go around disparaging someone, confronting someone. aggressively denouncing somebody everywhere to everybody. You try to ruin their reputation. You insult them. A person like that has no, they have, they have no ability to understand just being phased out. They have no way of understanding that because it's not what they do. It's completely foreign and life will phase people out as it is. As I've said before, there are some people that you spent time with, Where you go, okay, there was a time in our lives where the universe brought us together. And people have a hard time with this in adulthood because it can be so difficult to make friends as an adult. You make friends with coworkers. If you're a parent, maybe you make friends with your kids' friends' parents. I mean, a lot of my mom's friends when I was growing up were my my friends' moms. That's pretty common. But beyond work or some sort of 
maybe a common interest, but that's, you know, as we've become more computer oriented, as we've become more digital, you know, people can make friends that way. But the idea of making organic friendships does get more difficult as an adult. You're not in a class with a kid all day and you both like Star Wars. So as a result, though, because it can be so difficult to make friends as an adult, you have a tendency to institutionalize those people even more. Because it's like, oh, this person's in my life now. And if I don't hang out with this person, who am I going to hang out with? A lot of people operate from that mindset. So even though life will phase people out, because as I've said before, it's like in high school and junior high and this or that, you know, growing up, like when you're a kid, you kind of understand, like maybe you don't understand it, but it's kind of built into the experience that like I, I had friends that like we were in the same second grade class and went to each other's birthdays and had what they call play dates, what they call play dates. I don't call them play dates, but you would have things like that. And then the next year you're in a different class, you have a different teacher and you don't spend time with that kid outside of school. Like so much of our, so many of our relationships are circumstantial. Like there are people that I worked with as an adult and we formed close friendships for a while. Like we would hang out every weekend. We would go for drinks after work, but you know what you stop. And like when you stop working there, you might spend a little bit of time with them and be like, Oh, we're still friends. But you start to notice like as the months go by, you're like, Oh, we're not really, it's not really the same. We were basically in school together. We had this job together and maybe it's not just that. Maybe it's not just the job, but we had this little window of time in our life where it made sense to hang out and we had a good time and then it ended and there's no bad blood. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's no reason to keep this person institutionalized in your life and it feels unnatural to do so. So you just move on. But a lot of people don't understand moving on without a clear-cut reason. Well, there is a reason, which is that there was a window of time where it made sense. But people, to a lot of people, a reason is, oh, we're not friends anymore because blah, blah, blah. We're not friends anymore because she said. We're not friends anymore because he believes. We're not friends anymore. You know, a lot of people, that's their motivation to end a friendship. The idea of just kind of slowly phasing somebody out makes no sense to them because they think there needs to be a blow up. They think there needs to be some sort of dramatic event. It's not true at all. And the nice thing about living that way is if there's no bad blood and you had a time in your life with that person, you can still touch base with them. You can keep the channel open. If there is an emergency and you need their help, Chances are they could potentially help you. And if they can't, well, figure something else out. Don't depend on them. But that's the nice thing about just keeping the channel open and just moving on with your life sometimes. And I don't do that as a rule. Like, my close friends are in my life. My close friends are in my life. My close friends are in my life. You know, my close friends are in my life. You know, the people who have really gotten into my life stay there. And I'm loyal to them. And even if things do come to a head, like I think about some of my best friends and we've said some of the worst things that a human being could say to another human being. But, you know, that's when you're close enough to somebody, you can do that. It's like a lot of people would say the same for their family. 
Like thing, when things come to a head, when you know somebody very well and there's a level of trust, well, you can, you really, you know the chinks in somebody's armor. You know where to fire the arrow to make it hurt the most. But that's the beauty of being close to somebody is that you can do that at any time, but you don't, <laughs> you know, if you know somebody well enough, you know, the exact thing that would just hit them right in the balls, but you don't do it. But so many other friendships that aren't that deep, you just kind of, you let them go. If, if they're not, if that window of time is over, you just let them go. But as adults, you know, and I, and I admit too, like my social needs are far less than the average person. I'm much more of a loner than the average person. So I'm coming from that point of view too. Other people who need social interaction just to have social interaction, it might be more difficult, but I don't see why the same rule can't apply. Keep the channel open, phase people out. Things don't need to come to a head. But if someone lives a life where everything is coming to a head all the time, they're extremely confused when you just phase them out and you don't do it to be mean. It defeats the whole purpose if you do it to be mean. But it's the only way to go as far as I'm concerned. You just breathe in and out and time passes and people eventually get the hint. And I very rarely do that. I very rarely do that, but there are a couple people, and I, I admit that it's partially political. Partially political, pee-pee. You're just obsessed with pee-pee. Partially political. It's partially pee-pee. It is pee-pee. It's all a bunch of pee-pee. But, uh, you know, this person called me, and I'm just like, fuck. Because I've noticed that these people have been testing me too, and maybe they don't even know it, but you know, one of these people asked me, the last time I heard from them actually was one of them was like, have you gotten the vaccine? Have you gotten the vac? And I said, yeah. And they said, phew. And this is the same person who basically accused me of being radicalized by QAnon because I'm, I'm a proponent of free speech. Again, like I said, some people try to provoke you. These are provocative statements to me. Maybe they were just genuinely inquiring about my vaccine status, but I don't ask people that. I haven't asked a single person, have you gotten the vac? And based on the way this person had communicated with me a short time earlier, I can't help but feel that they were testing me to see if I'm anti-vac. And now it turns out I am. Even though I got both vacs, even though I got the double vac, I just saw that the dictionary updated one of the, one of the corporate mainstream dictionaries, and that's how we should see them as corporations. I think we all took for granted that dictionaries were just, oh, they're just telling us what words mean. We can see now where they're heavily politicized. And in the last year and a half, we've seen dictionaries get updated in real time. We saw where the dictionary, I think it was Oxford. I don't want to blame them, but I think it was them where they changed the definition of sexual preference to be defamatory to make Amy Coney Barrett look bad. 
We saw where that was updated overnight. The definition to sexual preference was updated overnight because Amy Coney Barrett used that phrase in her whatever that thing is, whatever that thing is, that her confirmation, whatever it was like where they were asking her questions about what she believed, you know, she used the phrase sexual preference and whoever was questioning her said, well, that that indicates that people choose their gender sexuality, whatever it is, which that's not what a preference is. First of all, I know I talked about this before, but it still pisses me off where it's like a preference doesn't mean that it's entirely your choice. Like, I don't choose to like chocolate ice cream over strawberry ice, strawberry ice cream. I don't choose to like chocolate. I prefer chocolate ice cream over strawberry, but it's not by my own design. Like, I didn't program my taste buds deliberately to prefer the taste of chocolate over strawberry. But I would still call it a preference. Like, if we were talking about music, Muzak, and I were to say, I prefer Slayer over Metallica. It's not that I'm doing that deliberately by design. I'm not, I'm not just randomly saying, oh, you know, guess what? I decided today I'm going to prefer Slayer over Metallica. I didn't just decide to do that arbitrarily for some reason. I guess if it's arbitrary, it's not for a reason. But I didn't just randomly decide that I'm going to prefer Slayer over Metallica for whatever reason. It's still a preference, though. And the same is true for sexuality. Where if you prefer men or you prefer women, like, let's talk about women. Let's talk about women. Like, I'm attracted to certain body types more than others. That is my preference. I find certain women more attractive than others. That is my preference. Did I decide that I like a woman with an hourglass figure and a big ass? A big ass? Did I decide that? No. It's still my preference. And that's how sexual preference has always been used. You prefer men, but it's not by choice. But they were trying to make a certain Supreme Court nominee look bad. This one woman decided that she was going to try to make this Supreme Court justice look bad by saying the term sexual preference is defamatory, that it indicates that gay people choose to be gay. The dictionary, I think it was the Oxford Dictionary, maybe Webster's, is one of those corporate dictionaries, politically compromised corporate dictionaries. One of them updated their definition overnight to say that the term sexual preference is disparaging it did not say that the day before people checked incredible and this just happened the other day where the definition on one of these corporate dictionaries for anti-vaxxer said somebody who's against getting vaccines and they just updated to say not just somebody who's against vaccines, but now the definition includes people who are against mandates. As I've said from the beginning, I'm vaxxed. I got vaxxed a long time ago. I got vaxxed years ago. No, I got vaxxed in March. And my whole stance has been, I, I, I was willing to get it. 
I felt like I didn't really have anything to lose. I felt like it would make my life easier to simply get vacked. I happened to have been at the doctor for another reason, and they said to me, do you want to get vacked? Do you want to get vacked? Do you want to get vacked? And I said, I shrugged. I was like, okay, that's easy. I'll probably have to get it at some point. And I decided that that wasn't going to be a hill that I was going to die on. I have a friend who's held out. He's still held out. And his ex-girlfriend and his, one of his close childhood friends, high school friends, have demonized him. I mean, his ex-girlfriend is still friends with him, but she continues, even though they broke up over the vac. Obviously, that was just a symptom of other issues, and I don't know that he would want me to talk too much about it. But still, the entire time they were dating near the end there, it was just a constant argument they were going through. And what actually provoked their breakup was that she invited him to a party with her friends where everybody was vacked, and she told him that if he came to this party, he had to wear a mask the entire time. Nobody else did. But because he was the only unvacked person, he had to wear a dunce cap. And he said, fuck that. That was the last straw for him. And he said, no fucking way. I'm not going to go to your party and be the dunce. And his close childhood friend, his high school friend, has just gotten, who was a reasonable guy up until recently, has just gotten incredibly dogmatic and severe, even though it doesn't affect him. They don't even live in the same state. They don't even see each other. And yet his friend feels the need to attack him over the vac. And I respect my friend's decision 100%. And he knows that I'm vacked. But I respect his decision to, to remain unvacked because I don't believe in mandates. I don't believe in demonizing people. And there's plenty of evidence that the VAC isn't what it's cracked up to be. That's all I'm going to say about that because I don't know. I'm, I don't care. But it turns out the VAC, the VAC isn't all it's cracked up to be. And then now that we're being told, oh, you get a, a Worcester Booster. Now you're only vac if you get a Worcester Booster. We can see where the definitions are just changing before our eyes. Where I got double vacked, pretty soon I'm not going to be considered vacked if they keep on with this Worcester Booster stuff. But what I was getting at was just that one of these mainstream corporate dictionaries, politically compromised dictionaries, updated their definition of anti-vaxxer. And now, and I looked this up myself, it says now, and it was updated recently, it now says that an anti-vaxxer is not just somebody who doesn't believe in vaccines. It's also somebody who doesn't believe in mandates. Even if you're vaxxed, you are an anti-vaxxer now. You are an anti-vaxxer. Not only if you're refusing to get it, but if you get it and simply don't believe that other people should be mandated to do so. I can't coexist with anybody who thinks that's okay. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy how silly and stupid. I enjoy the absurdity of it. It's a bad thing, but I enjoy the absurdity of bad things too because it reveals what people are. It shines a very bright light on what people are. 
And you know what? This is why I have to keep a guideline of kindness. This is why I have to strive to be a positive person. Because when I see things like this, if I don't keep myself in check, I will become psychologically monstrous. And I bet you can hear it in my voice right now. Because the fact that a dictionary, which you think like, you think about the way dictionaries used to be where they were published. It kind of makes you think, uh, it makes you question the entire history of dictionaries now that you know they do this in real time. But at least when something was published in a dictionary, it was set in stone. And here's that word consensus again, but it seemed like the definition was based on a well-researched consensus. But I can tell you this, there are a lot of people out there like me who got vacked, who are fairly indifferent or ambivalent about the vacking, the great vacking, but who don't believe anybody should be coerced, mandated, or othered. And I can tell you that none of us consider ourselves anti-vac because we got it. How could we be anti-vac? How could we be anti-vac if we got it? But the dictionary apparently knows more than we do. Because that definition comes from others, not us. That definition comes from people who are saying, oh, the people who don't agree with a mandate are our enemy. And so we're going to call them whatever we want. Even though those people are vaxxed too. Because they aren't on our side. Because they don't agree with us 100%. We're going to update the dictionary. So that when the average person just looks up the definition of anti-vaxxer. They're going to be like, oh, well, the dictionary says uh, an anti-vaxxer is not just somebody who's against the vaccine. It's also somebody who got it, but doesn't believe in mandates. So you're now an anti-vaxxer. That's a purely pejorative definition. It's so explicitly manipulative. It is so explicitly corrupt and compromised. Burn the dictionary. Burn it. Who knew that the book burning that we needed to have was just going to be a bunch of copies of the dictionary? I did a shitty grandpa comic about this, actually. Not about this. It was about the Oxford Dictionary, I believe, where a few years ago, their word of the year was an emoji. Not the word emoji. I would understand that. Because I understand that the dictionary needs to include new words. I'm not a linguistic conservative who believes that we have all the words we're ever going to use. We don't need any more. I'm not a linguistic conservative. I believe in adaptive language. I believe in an, involve, in, an evolving lexicon. Even if it includes stupid words like emoji. I could understand if the word of the year, I think this is 2016, 2017. I could understand if the word of the year was the word emoji. No, the word of the year was an emoji. It was a, a face. That's not a word. So I knew something was up with dictionaries then, even though that wasn't political. I knew something was horribly wrong with these corporate dictionaries. And is there any other kind? I don't know. 
I guess we can all make our own dictionary, grassroots dictionary. But I knew something was horribly wrong on the dictionary front when the word of the year was a smiley face. That's sick. I'm not kidding. It's funny to say that, but I'm not kidding. It's sick. It is sick to think about that. The word of the year was a smiling emoji or something. That is insane. So it shouldn't be any surprise that they are now updating the, their definitions in real time to demonize certain groups of people. That now the definition of anti-vacker is a catch-all. And I mean, may, did I get caught up in... I'm going to look it up right now. I'm going to use my lifeline. I haven't really used many of these lately. Um... Yeah, no, here it is. I mean, it's, I didn't get sucked into some propaganda here. Merriam-Webster, since 1828. Definition of anti-vaxxer. Right here, I'm at their website. It says... Let's see here. Um, just give me a second here. I want to make sure I get this right. It's a bunch of nonsense. Yeah, here it says, definition of anti-vaxxer, the definition of anti-vacker, including, according to Merriam-Webster since 1828, is a person who opposes the use of vaccines or regulations mandating vaccination. And that's a recent update. That is a recent update. As someone who opposes the regulations, but got the vac, that word does not describe me. That is outsiders, including anybody who disagrees with them into a category that does not accurately describe them. And what's really sick is that there are people who agree with that because I see them express themselves. I know them. I know people who would agree with that. I know people who would actually be mad at me for being against mandates. Unbelievable. So as much as I don't want to encourage anybody to detach themselves from fellow human beings right now in this trying time where we need each other, if there's people in your life who will think of you that way, who will treat you that way, who are waiting, who are waiting to be able to call you a name, to go after you for X, Y, Z reason, phase them out. Don't let it come to a head. Don't get sucked into their weird social campaign. Don't even let them know that you are their enemy. Phase them out. The sooner the better. The best time to phase somebody like that out of your life was yesterday. The next best time is right now. It's like planting a tree. And it is a tree because your life will get better and grow if you don't have people like that. So it kind of freaked me out this person called me because they have all sorts of pathological views and behaviors. Hopefully it wasn't an emergency. If it was, they have other ways they, they could contact me. And other people they could contact. But uh, 
it made my skin crawl. Because, you know, I, I sometimes wonder who all listens to this show. Like, I used to make it more of a point to just appear as passive and neutral to some of the world issues as possible. I don't know that I always did my best, but like going back to 2013, when I started doing this, obviously, I've been in substantially, I've been substantially infected by politics and everything, but my views on that stuff hasn't changed. Not that I haven't changed in some ways, but my general views, my values have not changed. And, uh, I think on this show, though, I've become less, I've cared less about being neutral, and I'm not nearly as severe as I could be. There are certainly things I don't express on here for one reason or another, for my own sake, for the listener's sake, because I, I understand that I go on about this stuff a lot. But, you know, I care less about neutrality. I'm willing to, I'm willing to say things that don't line up with whatever the dictionary says. I'm willing to say things that are less socially acceptable on here, and I don't promote this show. It's my little corner to say some things. Sometimes I vent, but I think there are people who know me and have known me who, if they listen to this, they would find some things I say highly disagreeable, and they might manufacture some sort of offense to some of what I say. I mean, even just thinking about the last Every Night's a School Night the other day, where I ended the show with quite a controversial song, an anti-Qaddafi song that also calls Libyans names. It doesn't matter that I opened the episode with a song mourning the death of Martin Luther King Jr. Because the negativity bias would say, oh, you played an, a very offensive country song about Libyans, about Qaddafi and people in the Arab world. You know, there's people who would hear that and be like, you, you played a very offensive song. Doesn't matter that the episode was, and this wasn't by design, but the episode was bookended by a song mourning the death of Martin Luther King Jr. A weird song, but both of them were very weird songs. I think a song, a song poem mourning the death of Martin Luther King Jr. and a country song about kicking Gaddafi's butt I think those are both very weird songs. But if somebody were to listen to that episode, if the wrong person, and they would truly be the wrong person, because they are not who I would want as an audience. But if the wrong person were to hear that, they would be like, oh my God, you, you platformed an incredibly offensive, bigoted song about Gaddafi and Libya. And it wouldn't matter that I started with Martin Luther King Jr. And I wouldn't even use that as a disclaimer because that's how you lose that argument is that somebody would be, you know, if you were to say, well, yeah, but I might have played that, but I also played this song that was pro Martin Luther King Jr. Because I don't believe in doing that. I was talking to somebody about Discogs and there was a record that I wasn't able to sell because the name of the band was offensive. It's considered offensive. Nothing explicitly offensive, but it's a reference to a very controversial political group. The name of this group, the name of this artist. But the funny part about that is the artists themselves are outspoken libs. They're outspoken libs. 
Like one of the guys, and it's an older group. I think this record is from the early 90s. I found one of the guys, one of the band members, social media or profiles. And it's just a bunch of pictures of him at a BLM rally. It's just a bunch of pictures of him protesting in favor of BLM. There are live recordings of this group where they openly denounce the political group who their name is in reference to. So it's art. But you know, it doesn't matter that the members themselves are actually against the thing that they are highlighting in their art. It doesn't matter that their intention was artistic in in nature. They don't agree politically with this group that they used for a name. But that shouldn't matter. But the fact that that even but the, I bring this up because even that nuance is lost. The fact that Discogs, a website that relies entirely on artists, on cataloging the work of artists, the fact that they don't have it in their system to say, oh, these artists, they might have been offensive. They might, or I don't, I don't hate that word. They might have used controversial subject matter based on the standards of today, but the members themselves are actually on the so-called good side of that controversy. There's no nuance. It doesn't allow for that kind of nuance. But my opinion is that that kind of nuance doesn't actually matter. Whether the artists believe in it or not, you should be able to sell that on there. There should be no limitations because to think that you can't sell certain items in the world of music and art operates from an assumption that people are too stupid to interpret. They're too stupid to appreciate or not appreciate. They're, they're basically too stupid to make a decision on their own. And anybody who could potentially want this, anybody who could potentially find this interesting is coming from the wrong place, or they will be influenced by somebody who's coming from the wrong place because they're stupid. And that's the root of all censorship is a belief that people are too stupid to handle information on their own, that people are too stupid to listen to music and come to their own conclusion, if any. I listen to so much freaking music throughout my life. I don't even come to a conclusion about most of it. I'm just like, this is interesting. For the same reason someone might watch a documentary. Oh, we can't have a documentary about a real event because somebody might interpret it the wrong way. We might as well be doing that if we're not already. We might as well be banning certain documentaries for covering certain subject matter. What do you think art is? It's not simply a documentary, but what do you think art is? I'm not going to define it. I have no need to define it. I'm not that kind of guy. Not that, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of guy who defines art. But the, the whole point is, it doesn't matter. All nuance is lost. It doesn't matter if the artists were using controversial subject matter in protest of that thing which it turns out this group that I was trying to sell the record for, turns out they were. I mean, how weak-willed are people? I mean, I own records by, van, by vans, by, by bands that were 
explicitly pro-vegetarian and vegan. And in fact, one of those bands when I was a teenager was one of my favorite bands. I loved them. This, to this day, I still hold them with a certain degree of reverence. It didn't turn me into a vegetarian. It didn't turn me vegan. They wrote songs about vegetarianism. And I was a teenager, which everybody thinks of as a very susceptible age to ideas. They didn't turn me vegan or vegetarian. I didn't feel internal dissonance. I didn't think, oh, if I'm going to listen to this, I have to agree with the band. I thought, this is communicating something. This is an expression. They could be a band who has a pro-vegetarian platform and they're not even vegetarians. Doesn't matter one way or another to me. It doesn't matter what I am either, because that's not, I'm not listening to this because I'm a vegetarian. I'm not a freak. Not the vegetarians are freaks, but I'm not a freak who's like, because I'm a vegetarian, I have to listen to pro-vegetarian music. Or because this music that I like is pro-vegetarian, I have to be vegetarian or else I can't authentically listen to it. That's weird. Maybe some people feel that way. It's not how I feel. It's not how my friends feel. But it shouldn't matter if we did. Shouldn't matter if we do agree with it. Shouldn't matter if the artists do agree with the sort of material they're using. But I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out, I believe, but yeah, it creeped me out to hear from this person. Maybe I'm making more of it than I should, but I just thought about all the different ways that this highly, this, this very um, emotionally charged, um, I don't want to insult them, but th this person definitely knows that I don't agree with them on a lot of issues and has said some provocative things to me in our limited interactions, which says something. If your limited interactions with somebody in the last couple of years have been tinged with that way of talking, that's a clear sign to just phase them out. Um, and in some of those conversations, I've even said, you know what, you're not going to change my mind. So let's just establish that right now. Like, you're not going to convince me otherwise. Like when I had this argument about free speech with this person, I said straight up, oh, just to be clear, I think there's some confusion here because you're not going to convince me to narrow my parameters as to what constitutes free speech and what not. And I don't care about the amendment. I don't care about the First Amendment. My own understanding of what free speech is transcends law and government. And not to say that I just believe everybody should go around saying whatever they want all the time. But as a general rule, I support free speech. Maybe even absolute free speech. I do. But this person was trying to convince me otherwise. And I had to say, oh, no, I think there's some confusion here. You're not going to be able to convince me to not believe in this because this has always been a foundation of my thinking and I have always been open about that. If there's one thing, like some people might think that my views are shrouded in something. Some people might think that I'm not always clear about what I believe or I don't believe. Some people 
have told me that I seem apolitical. One thing that everybody who knows me knows is that I am a proponent of free speech. And I had to say, I just had to say it during this argument. It was an online argument, but I just had to type out. I had to say, oh, I think there's some confusion because you're not going to be able to convince me, especially using the arguments that this person was using because they jump into the hate speech thing. They jump into this and then their, their argument falls apart very quickly too. And it's a useless exercise because they have such a fundamentally different view of what people should be allowed to express and not express. And a lot of where this person is coming from seems to come from a desire to tell other people what to do. Yeah, they might have certain values and they do, but I know this person and they will demonize and attack even other people who agree with them. I've seen them do this over and over again, even with their close personal friends who have all the same political views. This is a person who tries to coerce and control other people for any and every reason under the sun, and even some beyond that. Every reason under the moon. This person tries to coerce and control people even for every, every reason under the moon. So knowing that about this person, I just, I got this call, and this person has never called me. And I just was like, I can't answer that. And who knows what sort of, who knows what sort of campaign this person could build against me if they wanted, but I wouldn't care. The best thing to do is not engage. Because I know what they're all about, and that's all you need to know. Once you know what someone's all about, you can decide whether or not you want to be involved with them or not. You can decide whether or not having a friendship or a relationship or an acquaintanceship is of value to you. And it's not that everything has to have some measurable value. It doesn't. I have friendships where I wouldn't be able to tell you what the value is, but it's just kind of nice. We're both people and we can talk. But there are some people where it actually strips. It takes like what you value about relationships with your fellow human beings and it strips it away. And when someone like that is in your life, even on a peripheral level, there's no reason to be involved with them. I don't know if this person has access to this show, if they pay attention. I don't care. These people are around. I notice more and more of them. Because during times like these, these people tend to be the most vocal. They tend to be the most coercive. Because there are a lot of opportunities right now to be coercive. There are a lot of opportunities right now to just be mean-spirited. And when the dictionary is enabling that, when pop psychology is channeled through social politics in the form of phrases like toxic positivity, well, those people are operating at full force. They feel their behavior is justified. And maybe the phone call was innocent, but we don't live in innocent times. 
I'm not paranoid. I'm observant. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.